You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Thursday to you. It's Herd Mentality, the podcast episode each week where you take control of the discussion by sending in questions, comments, concerns, takes, whatever you have regarding the Buffalo Bills, and I respond to them here on the podcast. And we've got a bunch to get to, so let's do it. First one comes from Andy, and Andy says, if you were Brandon Bean, would you trade Mitch Trubisky to Indianapolis? And if so, what would it take in terms of picks and or players in return? So first things first, the reason we're even talking about this is because Carson Wentz, the Colts quarterback, is going to be out up to 12 weeks with a foot injury. We talked about that yesterday on the podcast and how that changes the landscape of the playoff picture in the AFC in my mind. And obviously it was already a gamble moving forward with Carson Wentz, who was dreadful last year, and really counting on your ability to help him find his game and rediscover the promise he showed back in 2017. Now, as it relates to the Bills and the idea of trading Trubisky to the Colts to help them with their quarterback issue, I'm not really for it. I think the most valuable thing that Mitchell Trubisky can provide the Bills this year is a steady backup to Josh Allen. And like I've said so many times, when Matt Barkley was the backup quarterback, that this team is too good to be one snap away from Matt Barkley. And even if it is you send Trubisky to Indy, you sign Matt Barkley, and you kind of recreate the same dynamic that you've had, I get nervous about that. And so, to me, I'm not really open to this idea at all. Now, if things get silly and the Colts are willing to trade a one or maybe even a two, then I start to think about that idea, and I probably would pull the trigger in that scenario. But Indy's not going to do that, and I don't think that's realistic. And so, even if we're talking about a third or a fourth-round pick, I'd rather have Mitch Trubisky on the roster this year and have the insurance necessary behind Josh Allen to keep this team afloat if he had to miss a few games. The next one today comes from Tyler, who says, Swing tackle appears to be a position of ambiguity, garnering attention with the absence of Dawkins. Hart has and continues to be a liability. Where do we go outside of counting on Brown, a rookie? Is there any possibility that the team plays to its strengths and in the case of a tackle injury slots forward in at tackle and swaps in Bakker or Lamp at guard? Rolling through these scenarios now is crucial and helps determine how we cut down later this summer and the Bills are deeper at guard. I'm not suggesting a permanent switch, but in case of injuries, Ford should be taking some tackle reps. So this is a really good question because you can see some of the issues that are happening right now with Dawkins being out of the lineup and Bobby Hart not being a capable backup and Spencer Brown being a young player that's not necessarily ready for pass protection duties in the NFL. And so you get nervous about this backup offensive tackle situation. And so ideally the hope is that through camp and preseason, Spencer Brown can get to a level where you feel good about what you have at backup offensive tackle. If not, I do think that the Bills do have options, and one of them is if it winds up being Darrell Williams that goes down, you can play Cody Ford at right tackle. You've also got Ryan Bates, who can play left and right tackle. Now, ideally, he's an interior player, 
and we haven't heard about him taking tackle reps to this point, but he has in the past, and that is something that is in his wheelhouse. And then you also have Forrest Lamp who can play some left tackle. So there are options, and every single one of those options are better than the idea of Bobby Hart playing any reps at tackle for this football team. Mike says, I have a question that I seldom see addressed regarding managing quarterback arms. In baseball, pitchers' arms are very closely managed, and they still always get hurt. I never hear talk of arm management with quarterbacks. I worry about the amount of throwing Josh does seemingly year-round. I also cringe when he rifles a ball at the wall or into the stands after scoring. So I really like this question, and it comes at a very timely moment because literally last week I had a conversation with a really good source of mine who is a director of player personnel at a very prominent Power 5 college football program, and we talked about load management as it relates to quarterbacks and their arms. And he actually gave me a really good quote on the topic that he is comfortable with me using here on the podcast. He said, from an arm health standpoint, it's not at all like baseball. Pitch count doesn't matter. Given a football is an overload instrument, there is very little risk of explosive injury like a UCL tear that occurs in underload throws. And then he compares a five ounce baseball versus a 15 ounce football limits the speed your arm can go and explode. While he did concede that there's probably an upper limit somewhere, it is much more likely for an older quarterback. So I don't think I can answer the question any better given Josh Allen's age and the fact that a football is a heavier ball than a baseball and what is required to throw the football and the arm explosion that you can generate because of the weight of the instrument, there's just a lot less concern for injuries. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto, a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions like, is your Odyssey an LX or an EX, and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry? You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and right in your pocket. Save time and save money when using Rock Auto. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto. Weak tortilla chips suck. I know it. You know it. Even the New York Jets know it, and they don't know anything. Lucky for you, I just discovered Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips. This company's mission is to create delicious tortilla chips that don't break in guacamole. Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips follow the traditional process of making tortillas first before cutting and frying them into chips. Most tortilla chip brands are weak because they skip this very important step. However, The team at Zach's Mighty knows that this authentic process is the only way to make a sturdy tortilla chip. On top of it all, Zach's Mighty grows its organic corn at farms in the Buffalo, Rochester area. And not only are Zach's Mighty tortilla chips sturdy and don't break in guac, they taste incredible. Pick up a bag at your local Wegmans or Whole Foods Market and say no to weak and crappy tortilla chips forever. Zach's Mighty tortilla chips stand up to guac. The next one today comes from Vin, who says, First, Joe, 
How good does it feel to talk some actual Buffalo Bills football? Let's talk about elite jersey numbers. What are some of your favorite numbers? Some of my favorites are 4, 17, 31, and 99. Some of my least favorites are 1, 7, 30, and anything in the 40s. Also, Joe, how are you feeling about the reports on how well Gregory Rousseau has looked thus far? So, yes, Vin, I am absolutely enjoying this phase of the year where we get to talk about more real-time football things. But honestly, I love every part of the calendar for different reasons. So this is definitely enjoyable. Nothing compares to actual regular season where we have games to reflect upon, games to get ready for, all of those dynamics, the storylines and narratives of the season. I love that obviously the most, but playoffs and free agency and the draft and you know OTAs and all the roster construction conversations, the big picture conversations we get to have in the offseason – uh, reflecting back on different eras of Buffalo Bills football. I love it all. So, you know, every single day of the calendar is something I enjoy when it comes to producing this podcast and talking Buffalo Bills football. So as for the jersey number conversation, I really like these numbers, 5, 15, 25, 75, 95, and 85 if you are a tight end. I really love the number 5. So just about any number that has a five in it, I typically like. Now, my least favorite numbers, I don't like anything in the 50s or 60s. If you're an offensive lineman, you need to get a number in the 70s. 40s for defensive backs is terrible. 40s for running backs is also terrible. And I'm not really a fan of running backs that have numbers in the 30s either. So if you're a running back, you need to have single digits or something in the 20s in my mind. As for the Gregory Rousseau hype, I'm very encouraged by how positive it's been. I think I'm more encouraged by the way Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott and the veterans on the team have spoken about how they are performing to this point. I think that just as much as the glowing practice reports and the impact that he's making and how he's giving Daryl Williams some challenges over there, all of that's really good. But the way people are talking about him probably excites me even more. And so for a player that I definitely have billed as raw and had, you know, pretty modest expectations for what he can mean in year one, you know, I'm starting to perk up a little bit and, uh, you know, maybe be open to some bigger contributions. And I certainly hope that happens. Michael says, I don't understand the NFL. Sometimes I've heard so much good news about FA Obata. Why would the Carolina Panthers let a guy like this go? So I'll start by saying this. There's a lot of Panthers fans that were pretty disappointed to see him get away. They wanted him back, and the team just let him walk in free agency, and they had a lot invested in this player, bringing him along through the International Pathway program, just like the Bills have done with Christian Wade. And he winds up having his best season last year, and he departs in free agency. And it doesn't really sound like they made that much of an effort to get him back. In fact, last year at one point they actually cut him and then re-signed him. So, you know, it's been a weird relationship when it comes to Obata and the Panthers. But there were a lot of fans that were very disappointed to see him get away. Now, one thing that I'll say about players that get away, whenever you have new leadership, like the Carolina Panthers, a new general manager and Scott Fitterer, new head coach and Matt Rule, that had nothing to do with F.A. Obata getting to the Carolina Panthers and Marty Herney's gone at GM, this is kind of what happens. They want their own guys. They want their fingerprints on the roster with players they brought in. I mean, you've seen this happen with the Bills. They made no attempt to re-sign Robert Woods or Nikel Roby Coleman or Stephon Gilmore when Sean McDermott took over, 
And I think the only player left from the 2016 roster is Jerry Hughes, maybe Reed Ferguson, if I'm not mistaken. But players don't really survive and last through regime changes. So that's just something to keep in mind with when players get away. A lot of times it's because a new regime takes over and that new regime wants their own players that they build the roster with. The next one comes from Joe who says, obviously I'm sad to see Andre Roberts, Dean Marlowe, and Corey Bajorquez gone in that order. While you've speculated Dean Marlowe left for a better chance at starting, which makes sense, it still does not make a great deal of sense why the other two are gone. I've seen reports circulating that Roberts was too expensive for a tight cap and Corey B. did not want to commit to a long-term deal like Matt Hawk did. But these make less sense to me. While I'll probably always be scratching my head why Andre Roberts left arguably the best functioning team in the league for one of the most dysfunctional at this point in his career, my pea brain has concocted a theory on the punter swap. As both are left footers, perhaps Matt Hawk offers more reliability at holding than Corey Bajorquez did, a function more valuable to the team at this point in their high-scoring, low-punting life cycle. And perhaps Matt Hawk's background in trick plays makes him more fun for aggressive fourth-down, go-for-it antics. Wondering if you could comment on this theory to either back up my thoughts or tell me to go get the tinfoil hat out and that I'm reading too far into something when there's nothing. So I think you have some good points here, Joe. I do think Hawk's ability as a holder is notable. He has a very good history in that role for the Miami Dolphins. And we saw some issues from Corey Bajorquez in that capacity, whether it's clean ball handling or getting the laces out. He had some issues last year and in previous years. I do think that they want consistency in that operation, the holder kicker operation with Tyler Bass. And so marrying Matt Hawk to Tyler Bass as this kicker holder combination is something that was appealing for the Bills. And the concern that Corey Bajorquez didn't want a long-term deal is a good point to bring up as to why they made this swap. But here's my concern about the whole thing. Like, I think you have sound logic and reasoning and you're reading into some of the thought process as to why the Bills made this punter swap. My concern about Matt Hawk is that he's an average to below average punter. And he's been very inconsistent for Miami in that role. A lot of shanks, a lot of line drives. And now he's going to Western New York and punting there. I have some concern about that. So maybe they got better at Holder. Maybe they have more opportunity to do trick plays with Matt Hawk. But for the function of punter, I'm not sure he's better than Corey B. And I'm not sure he's one of the better punters in the NFL. Like I think he's a below average punter. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. And he has a great year. And we wind up being very happy that Matt Hawk is the punter. But right now, I feel like the Bills got worse at punter going into the season. The next one comes from Kyle, and Kyle has more of a take than he does a question, so make sure you pay attention to this because I think he's got some really good points. Kyle says, whenever someone mentions Isaiah McKenzie as the favorite for the punt return spot, all I can picture is a slow-motion replay of him back to return a punt and the football slipping through his grasp. Granted, he regained control and took it 87 yards to the house. I'm talking about the Week 17 return from last season. This is just an example of how slim the margins are in football. That play could have been a catastrophe, and if he muffed that, is he even being discussed as an option, let alone the favorite for being the return guy this year? Hopefully that play proves that McKenzie has really turned a corner and improved his handling and is more sure-handed. You mentioned on today's pod that you're most looking forward to the battle 
at the bottom of the wide receiver depth chart this preseason, but I am glued to every punt return situation more than I ever thought I would be. I believe that this is our biggest weakness, and I'm not truly confident in anyone on the roster. As much as we all love Kyle Williams, if you bring that name up to 49ers fans, you'll most likely get a much different reaction because their Kyle Williams almost single-handedly cost the 49ers a trip to the Super Bowl back in 2012. With all that being said, I trust the process, trust McBean, and can't wait for the games to begin. As always, go Bills. Yeah, look, I definitely share in your concern over the punt return situation. And you mentioned that if McKinsey would not have gained control of that football last year and it wind up being a turnover, that he may not be in contention to be the team's punt returner this year. Well, over the history of Isaiah McKenzie's football career, whether that's in Georgia or with the Denver Broncos or with the Buffalo Bills, he's had a very poor history of fielding punts. A lot of muffs, a lot of fumbles, a lot of misjudgments in terms of letting the ball bounce or fielding it. I mean, he's had a lot of issues. There's no question about it. And so the hope here is that he's really dedicated himself to learning this skill and is coming into his own and is ready to claim that role. But the reality is his background is very poor when it comes to those dynamics. And so I have great concern about it, just like you. So hopefully McKinsey locks this thing down and has a great season, and perhaps he's even the long-term guy there. But if you point to his history, it is very, very poor. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code LOCKEDON. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. The next one today comes from Ben, who says, It is my understanding that the Bills' running game was stronger in 2019 than it was in 2020. Specifically, Singletary's efficiency was certainly better in 2019. It is also my understanding that the Bills used a pin-and-pull method of run blocking much more in 2019 than they did in 2020. I also understand that pin-and-pull is a method that requires significant coordination and repetition to perform well. It would seem that a blocking scheme that requires more coordination and repetition to perform well would be a scheme that is hard to implement in an offseason like last year's. So, although there are many potential factors that caused the reduced running efficiency last year, I would think the Bills' preferred scheme of pin and pull would be more negatively impacted by the COVID offseason last year than other more straightforward run schemes. Do you think the Bills will return to their pin and pull scheme this year do you believe that if they do, there is a reason for optimism regarding a more efficient run game this year due to a more traditional offseason? Is this potentially one of the reasons for the strange activity around Mitch Morse last year? Do you think Singletary, Moss, and Breida have conducive running styles to pin and pull and last and probably should have been first? Can you provide a brief description of pin and pull run blocking schemes? I think I get it, but not 100% sure. All right, so let's dig into all of the stuff that Ben brought up here. And let's actually start with what a pin and pull run scheme is. So here's the principles of a pin and pull run scheme from an offensive line perspective. If you are uncovered, meaning there is no offensive lineman on top of you, there is nobody on top of you, 
you pull to the play side. So if you are a center and nobody is on top of you and the run direction is right, you pull to the right. If you are a tackle and there's a tight end outside of you and the defensive end lines up over the tight end and you are uncovered and the run is going to the right, you pull to the right. So if you are uncovered, you pull play side. And so what happens is you create very natural leverage when it comes to finding blocking angles for your offensive lineman to hit blocks. And so if you're uncovered and you pull to the play side, the other offensive linemen are executing down blocks to fill for the pulling offensive lineman. And what this does is it creates easy leverage blocks for them. So you're creating gaps out in front to the direction of where you're going, and then you're down blocking with your other offensive linemen, creating good, easy leverage angles to wash people down and create rushing lanes. And so also with this style of run, it's very easy to tag them with an RPO, with a run-pass option, and you just create all types of nightmares for defenses to deal with. And then in this scheme, right, so you have – down blocks, and you have poles if you're uncovered to the play side. The function of the running backs is to follow the offensive linemen that are pulling and attack space, right? Attack creases, run to daylight. That is what they are supposed to do. So you can kind of get a feel for what this does. And when you have offensive linemen like Mitch Morrison, centers are traditionally uncovered. It allows for him to get out on the move more frequently and use him in the capacity that he functions best. And so that was kind of a, an issue where you felt like the Bills, when it comes to running the football in 2019, they had so much success with Mitch Morse as this lead blocker, and he just didn't get as much of that last year. And so that's why this has been a, a conversation this offseason. Now, defensively, when you're dealing with a pin-and-pull run scheme, it's very challenging because the gaps are moving, and you create additional gaps to the run strength and where they want to go with the football. And so not only is it challenging to fit the run, you have additional gaps to account for that didn't exist pre-snap. So it just creates a lot of issues. And it creates good leverage for your your offense when you're thinking about those pullers getting ahead of second-level flow and having good blocking angles at the line of scrimmage. It just creates a very natural run opportunity and those lanes really speak for themselves and they declare themselves and running backs should have a pretty easy time navigating through that. So now that we've established what a pin and pull run scheme is, let's go back to your specific questions. And your first one was, do you think the Bills will return to their pin and pull scheme this year? I hope so. I think they should. It's a good plan given you have athletic offensive linemen like a Mitch Morse that you can feature in that way. I think you can really get some more production by doing that and create a more difficult run scheme to defend and a run scheme that gives you a lot of options in the RPO game. Your second question was, do you believe that if they do, there is reason for optimism regarding a more efficient run game this year due to a more traditional offseason? Absolutely. And I think overall, whether it's more pin and pull or just inside zone, outside zone, having the traditional off season allows them to get the timing down. And that is important. You can really build off of what you have and figure out how your offensive line works together best. So you can design the run scheme most effectively. 
Then you said, is this potentially one of the reasons for the strange activity around Mitch Morse last year? I've heard a lot of different things about Mitch Morse and the reasons for some of those weird things about his situation last year. But if you strip it down to some of the basics, he was the starting center. He got a concussion. He was cleared, missed a little bit of time. They chose not to start him right away when he came back. And it felt like he was benched. Sean McDermott clarified. He returned to the starting lineup. I felt like the run offense was much better late in the season. And they brought him back on a restructured contract, and he's going to be the team starting center this year. So I don't know that he's going to be part of the mix beyond this year, but I think he's a really good center, and I'm glad that he's back. And then you mentioned if Singletary, Moss, and Breida have rushing styles that are conducive to pin and pull, absolutely. Um, When you think about Singletary and Moss specifically, they are guys that when you watch them at college, you felt like they had really good vision, and that was part of what they brought you. And so you're giving them run-to-daylight type opportunities, so that should mesh well with their strengths. Plus, it gives them more leverage, and so – that helps negate some of those issues that they have naturally because of their limited athletic profiles. So really good question, Joe. I really appreciate you kind of breaking it down like that and giving us an opportunity to dig into the pin and pull and some of those dynamics. Matt says, hey, Joe, did you notice that Reggie Gilliam is listed as a fullback on the Bills website now? I believe he was a tight end last year on the roster, and he changed his number back into the 40s, and he was in the 80s last year. Could that signal that he may be safer on the roster than we originally thought? I'm at the training camp practice right now, and he's running with the first team a lot. So, yes, I did notice that, and that's been a bit of a conversation that hasn't necessarily made its way out of this podcast, but now we are going to talk about it. Um, The website has him listed as a fullback, and his number is back into the 40s. And so with him being a fullback and really being the only fullback on the roster and a guy that – brings value on special teams, and made the roster last year. Um, It's interesting. When Brian Dable spoke about Gilliam this week, it was interesting because he said he matters a lot for the team on special teams, but if he has a role on offense, that will be up to him. So it didn't sound like he was a slam dunk. And I think him having the fullback label actually might not help him because the Bills really don't use a fullback that much And they played their tight ends in the backfield a lot last year. That was a big shift in terms of how stylistically the tight ends were used last year. So I'm not sure that they want to have a fullback-specific player. Now, that doesn't mean he can't be cross-trained and still serve some of the functions of a tight end, but um, I don't know that the Bills are going to be interested in keeping a fullback only. So his versatility is helpful. Um Jacob Hollister is a guy that I think can fill some of those fullback duties, and if his absence prolongs, that is something that will be helpful for Gilliam. I think it makes me think of him more likely to make the roster, but he's still a guy that I think is probably on the outside looking in. And I'll be honest with you, I don't feel super confident in that take because I can really see it going either way. Jeremy says, last year Josh Allen struggled in cover two looks. What can Josh Allen do to improve against this look? What can the Bills do scheme-wise to help make it easier for Allen to read it and find open players? So first of all, cover two is becoming less and less common in the NFL. And we saw Patrick Mahomes struggle with cover two against Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl. And I honestly think it comes down to the lack of experience 
that today's young quarterbacks have facing cover two looks. I wish I had the data regarding Josh Allen and how he fared against cover two last year. That would be something that's very interesting to me. But I do think, again, you point to Mahomes and how he struggled against Tampa Bay, who ran a bunch of cover two in the Super Bowl. And I just think it's a look that is not nearly as common. And so quarterbacks might not fully be up to speed on what it takes to beat cover two. So there are a lot of weaknesses in a cover two defense, mainly the deep middle, curl routes, and off-tackle runs. Those are the three areas where the Tampa 2, cover 2 style defense is vulnerable. And so spread concepts, especially if you give 3 by one sets, that's a nightmare for cover 2. That kills it. The spacing and design of a cover 2 defense when you go 3 by one is absolutely a nightmare. So I think you do that, which the Bills do a ton of anyways. And then it just comes down to attacking the curl area, the deep middle, being willing to challenge the flats and make them tackle outside the tackle. And then just, look, it's it's alignments, and it's where you can attack, and it's it's being able to threaten with outside runs. So maybe Matt Breida helps with that, and obviously Josh Allen is very capable of attacking the middle of the field and challenging middle linebackers to get depth, and that middle of the field open area between the two safeties is just a sweet place to throw against cover two. And then obviously curl routes, which – Josh Allen is very capable of utilizing. Justin says, do you think this is the year where the Bills keep seven wide receivers? And do you think Bean genius signed Bobby Hart to give the young defensive ends some confidence? So as it relates to the seven wide receivers, I hope so. I wanted that last year. I definitely want it this year. That probably means the Bills keep nine offensive linemen, two quarterbacks, four running backs, and three tight ends to get to seven receivers. But when it comes to the versatility and youth that the Bills have at wide receiver, I want to keep these guys around. We talk about the top five, Diggs, Beasley, Sanders, Davis, McKenzie. But I want to see Kumaro on this roster. I'd love to see Marquez Stevenson. I want to see if Tanner Gentry can force the issue. Isaiah Hodgins. I don't want to say goodbye to all those players. So I'm interested in seven wide receivers, especially when you want to go potentially five wide sometimes. Tons of 10 personnel. You're nearly always an 11. Keep the receivers. Now, as it relates to Bobby Hart being a genius signing by Brandon Bean, I don't know. It might be because from the moment that move was announced, I was not a fan. I've never been a fan of Bobby Hart. You guys have heard me talk about Bobby Hart. Go back to the podcast where that signing happened, and I was quite candid about him and got really deep into his struggles throughout his career. I don't have any time for Bobby Hart, I'll tell you that. Brett says, it seems like whenever there is an elite player requesting a trade or on the free agent market, we should ask ourselves, is this a serious and attainable option for the team? I'm looking forward to the defensive line improvement, we hope and predict, but unless we see huge developmental spikes from maybe Ed Oliver, I can't help but to think we lack a real game changer on the D-line like an Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt, or Khalil Mack. Can you see BBB making moves before the season starts for a disgruntled 2019 runner-up for Defensive Player of the Year in Chandler Jones? Maybe a trade involving a young player and some draft capital. I don't see it. I don't see that happening. I think Brandon Bean has made his bed when it comes to this defensive line. Hughes, Addison, Epinesa, Obata, Rousseau, Basham. That's a ton of guys. Veterans, 
young players, they're going to rotate. I just don't see this happening. And I don't know that I would do it. I think part of the plan for the Bills having so much young talent at defensive ends are the salary implications and the roster balance. I think the plan here is to solidify a premium position like defensive end with cheap labor so that you can fit in these expensive contracts that are coming, like Josh Allen at quarterback. Obviously, linebacker, when you think about Milano and Edmonds and that tandem and what they're going to cost, it's going to be a lot. The secondary, I mean, they're paying Trey White. They're paying Jordan Poyer. They're paying Micah Hyde. Taron Johnson is up very soon. They're paying big dollars at wide receiver. So I think part of the plan here for roster balance is having a premium position like defensive end filled with players on rookie deals so that they can get by there with the impact they're looking for, but not necessarily it coming at a high cost. I think that's the vision. And so you buck that big time if you trade for Chandler Jones, who's going to be a $25, $30 million a year player. So you're giving up a younger player, potentially draft picks for Chandler Jones, who we know is an elite player. But the salary implications here really throw off the balance and planning when it comes to the football team. So I think they want to rotate. I think they got the mix of guys they like. And so predictively, I don't think it's going to happen. And I guess from a preferential standpoint, I don't think I'd do it. The last one today comes from Cody, who says, have a question for herd mentality. With reports of the offense not missing a beat and being on fire in training camp, does that make you worried a little bit about the defense? I know iron sharpens iron, but if they can't stop Josh Allen, how are they going to stop Patrick Mahomes? You know, Cody, I'll be honest with you. I feel like the reports have very much been some days have went to the offense and some have went to the defense. I don't get this impression that offensively they are completely dominating the defense. I think it's been back and forth. And, um, I mean, to your point, if if that was the case and defensively the Bills were just struggling and they were getting lit up all the time by the Bills' offense, that would be a concern. But I don't know that I agree that that's been the case to this point. And especially now that the pads are on, I think you're going to see that shift a little bit more where defensively that is going to be an advantage to them where they can be more aggressive at the line of scrimmage both in the trenches and in the secondary when they're playing you know, closer and more physical in coverage. You know, I think all of that is going to change a little bit here as we have more full padded practice and more contact. So I am not panicked. I'm expecting this defense to rebound in a big way this year. There's so much returning talent, so many guys that have been together for years and years and years. The communication should be absolutely perfect at this point. You've got some really talented and experienced coaches. I just think everything that they want defensively exists, um, and it's just got to come together and and perform, and I think that's going to happen this year. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed. The Bills are back on the practice field today, and we'll talk about all of the prominent storylines from the Bills' Thursday practice on tomorrow's show. They also signed a new offensive lineman, which we'll get into, and you know, whatever else comes our way when it comes to the Buffalo Bills, you know I'll be here for you tomorrow and every weekday all year long. So make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. Hope you have a great day, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.